0: Hello and welcome. My name is Sophia Besh and you're listening to the CER podcast. Hello. Hello. I'm here today with Daniel Kjohan, who is a CER alumnus. Daniel is now a senior researcher at the Center for Security Studies at ETH Zurich. He used to be the European Defence Research Fellow at the CIA. So my question to you is, first of all, the Brexit negotiations and how they might affect Europe speaking with one voice on defence and security because this could be one of the few constructive areas for cooperation post brexit In theory, if we were looking at a rational actor negotiation, I think this is one of the areas where there is a mutual benefit for both sides. So the EU obviously has an interest in keeping the UK as a very powerful military power closely involved in its operations. And the UK similarly has no interest in the EU becoming a civilian power, because what the EU certainly does do is it brings Europe. European member states together at one table, which for a lot of the security topics that we're talking about is crucial, really, the information sharing in the first place. And the UK certainly has an interest in continuing to be a part of these discussions, because European security in the end is in every member state's national interest. And even a parting member state like the UK should keep that in mind. But we're not looking at a rational actor negotiation.
1: Things are getting emotional.
0: Yeah, things are getting emotional, things are getting political and both sides really have something to prove in these negotiations. So the UK has really gone into a big political gamble and it has to prove to its citizens that it can indeed be better off as a global Britain outside of the European Union. And the EU27 are looking at the exact opposite of that rationale. The EU27, led I think in particular by Germany and France, are really interested in proving that the UK cannot be better off outside the union than inside the union because they want to avoid a sort of domino effect of other countries leaving as well. And that is perceived already in the UK as As a punishment, as a punitive kind of logic, which is, I don't think, really how it's seen in in capitals on the continent, but which risks poisoning negotiations over security and defence that could really be mutually beneficial.
1: Will you touch on a bigger point here? Because I was in Berlin recently, and it really struck me that they do not understand this punishment narrative at all. From the German mindset, it seems to me, that it's very simple. We want to preserve the EU because it's an absolute core national interest for us. It's not going to be for the UK in the same way anymore we understand that and the UK made its decision free will and is free to leave and we just simply want to negotiate and we're very clear what our starting negotiating position is and that's been perceived in London as a punishing approach and it, whereas in the German mindset it's black or it's white in the British mindset it's 50 shades of grey. <laughs> uh, and I, I think there's a genuine cultural misunderstanding here because of course Germany is, is deeply committed to European integration in a way that the UK never was. Uh, So it is to do with history, it's also to do linguistically. It's very difficult, I think, for outsiders to understand that the British don't always mean what they say. I've been struck by that here in London, obviously all the focus is on Brexit and all the focus is on what kind of Brexit should Britain have. There's not been so much focus on what really do the French and the Germans think. I think that's been missing a bit Mm. in London. And as well, I was struck in Berlin Brexit is one of maybe five problems, obviously the refugee crisis, obviously Russia, obviously the Eurozone, holding the EU together, Trump and then Brexit. Mm. So it's not the only problem we have on the continent as it were, uh, whereas in London it's all about Brexit. There are some real genuine differences in mindset now. I fear we're in for an extremely difficult period mm. and I'm not, it's not going to be easy.
0: I'm starting actually to get a bit more optimistic, at least on the security and defence front. (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's It's a rare thing (laughs) these days. It's a rare thing these days. (laughs) No, but um, talking to British officials... I believe that something has been understood, which is that the British security surplus, which is yes, the wonderful yes. euphemism that we found here in London to talk about this, which means that the, the UK contributes more, arguably, to European security than it gets out of EU uh, security yeah, mechanisms. Well, I think that's fair. So that they have understood that the security surplus can be used in constructive ways as a carrot, but not necessarily that's as a stick. stick. Exactly. So threatening to withdraw uh, British security contributions contributions. contributions. That's a huge step, I believe, um, for the British debate. And um, it makes me think that maybe, at least in this policy area, we might see a mutually beneficial arrangement in the end.
1: There is an issue, of course, about the UK's access and cooperation with the EU on security and defence after Brexit. I mean, obviously, I think think it's healthy that people understand here the UK can't have a say. Uh, However obviously other EU countries still want the UK to contribute Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, and everyone recognises that the UK has vast experience and resources. I mean that's one of the greatest shames uh, from an EU point of view of the UK leaving uh, particularly on security and defence. The question is how to do it. I mean I've thought in the past that only really an ad hoc model could work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, That you know depending on the operation or capability project at hand the UK could join in or contribute as it sees fit. And Michael Fallon, the Defence Secretary here in in London, has suggested that in the past. And, of course, they'd be interested in continuing to uh, be involved in capability programmes. I'm not so sure, though, if I were sitting in the FCO, in the Foreign Office, that I would like that model because the UK will always uh, just be reacting to whatever the EU 27 have agreed uh, and would probably prefer some sort of more in between formal and informal kind of observer status, Mm -hmm. at least. Either way, with the ad hoc model, and especially with the observer model, it would depend, in the end, on political trust. The big advantage the UK would have is it brings so much to the table. It's not just about military capacity or experience. It's really about knowledge information intelligence. And of course, the UK on top already knows how the system works. Uh, The UK already understands it. It brings so much to the table. Most member states would still want to work with the UK. So if that could be resolved quickly, you know, we can put the defence brief aside uh, and worry actually really about the big question about NATO. Uh, and at the same time say well that's at least an easy quick win on the Brexit negotiations you see it can be done constructively so it's a win-win and frankly we really need to worry about the Donald more than we do uh, in some ways about the UK-EU relationship on defence but interestingly I wonder I wanted to ask you if I may Sophia because I, I wonder the, the French wouldn't necessarily mind the observer model because they do like to work bilaterally with the UK, they're very similar strategic cultures in a general sense but how do you think people in Berlin would really be receptive? How would Germany feel about uh, this observer uh, model?
0: Well, I mean, a couple of points of that. I think, in theory, At least Merkel's Germany is quite pragmatic when it comes to partnerships and when it comes to working with partners. One of her mantras is, I can't pick my crises, I can't pick my partners. So this is, I think, the pragmatism that we saw in the deal that she made with Turkey, for example. So if there is a crisis and if the UK is the right right country to cooperate with in this crisis, I believe that she would do that. The caveat is, of course, a privileged partnership implies that the UK can have all the benefits of membership without it. On that another point, which is that we might have to consider the associated members
1: as well. How, as well no as they Norway stand
0: right now, how would and Norway and Turkey, Turkey feel? Well, how would they feel if the UK gets a privileged deal on this?
1: Turkey, and you can be sure. Erdogan's Turkey will want something.
0: It's interesting the dynamic that we might observe in the future between the associated countries right now and the UK, because countries like Norway might even benefit from a country like the UK joining their little family because it might give them more power over the EU. So this is something that, at least for policy wonks, is going to be interesting to watch. But now, of course, enter President Trump. Uh, yes. which changes this um, this rationale, this calculation somewhat. We know that Trump has spoken about NATO being obsolete, being possibly obsolete, but really important to him. We know now that his Secretary of Defense, General Mattis, might have some positive influence yeah. on, on him, might actually no. accept that NATO is a, a relevant alliance for the 21st century after all. But what is clear is that he applies a very transactional logic to security. That is relevant for NATO because he thinks of of it in terms of good Europeans and bad Europeans, if I can simplify that much. So the good Europeans that deserve American protection because they invest in their own security, because they adhere to NATO's target of 2% defence spending, and the bad Europeans that don't. And I just foresee a lot of division coming from that kind of logic.
1: I think we would both agree that Trump is right that Europeans aren't contributing enough To their own defense and i think the problem really is germany italy and spain who are all hovering around one percent germany is about 1.2 italy's around one and spain is just under one if those three increase their defense spending the picture looks a lot healthier because of course they're a huge chunk but you raise a much much bigger question uh how do you deal with a problem like the donald this of course is just after Prime Minister May's visit to US President Trump. Why didn't Prime Minister May not try and coordinate a bit with Chancellor Merkel, President Hollande in advance? You know, she could have presented this as, I'm not just doing this to get support for Brexit, I'm actually just as interested, if not more, in the defence of Europe. She had an opportunity here to be very constructive. If handled correctly, defence policy could become one of the most constructive areas in the Brexit negotiations, but I think she's missed this opportunity, frankly. So the optics of this are quite bad, uh, and that's a shame. And I've been struck that a few of the politicians said to me today, but the Continental should be thanking us. Uh, Theresa May has saved NATO. You saw on the press conference that Trump uh, has said that he is 100% committed to NATO. Now, I watched the press conference, I wasn't that reassured. But I just don't trust President Trump. What I'm really worried about is that we could see the emergence of an Anglosphere versus Eurosphere. Similar s- splits along the lines that are similar to the very awful splits over the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And I remember it so well because I, of course I was working here at the time and they were really bitter. But it would be even worse this time in a way because Italy and Spain would be lined up with France and Germany. The, the swing state might be Poland, uh, which of course the, Polish, the current Polish government shares a lot of Trump's worldview. But suddenly you get into a very difficult political situation where NATO loses all its coherence, in fact loses its value. Brexit negotiations uh, become even more difficult. So this is really what's worrying me and why I think it's a real shame that Theresa May did not show leadership on European defence.
0: Well, thank you so much, Daniel, for thank talking you. to me. Thank you
1: very much, Sophia. It was really great to be back.
0: Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. You can find more on our website, cer.org.uk, or follow us on Twitter at cer underscore London.